City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. limits. Okay, City Limits, we're on City Limits. Hang on, prove we are on City Limits. Listen to this. Port of the tea. It's the fourth Wednesday of the month. Today I'm going to be talking to Libby, Professor Libby Porter from RMIT who is um, well known in talking about issues to do with housing, to do with particularly the privatisation of public housing. And I'm sure she wants to talk to us too about the lockup in the blocks that we talked about last week. And we're also going to talk to Libby about the attacks on tertiary education that have been occurring for a long time and the new announcement in the last couple of weeks by Minister Tian, which in fact will uh, increase by 113% the cost to students who want to do humanities type subjects so we'll have a yarn about that as well because that's an area of course in which she operates anyway. Um, so there we are, I'm Kevin Healy, Meg uh, Kimber's out there, Karina's pressing the buttons and Meg, how are you this week? Mm. Good thanks Kevin, I'm looking forward to having Libby Potter on the show, she was the co-author of an article in the conversation talking about public housing and the response to coronavirus in the um, public housing estates around the time of the detainment of public housing residents. So, um, yeah, it'd be good to sort of check in with her about that. Yeah, and of course that was co-written by one of our other regulars, Kate Shaw, so... Um, yeah. ...from Melbourne, so... Right. And another, right. author whose name I, another author whose name I don't have in front of me. We could check with Libby, yeah. yeah. But also, um, it'll be interesting to talk to her about the changes to higher education funding and, yeah, these, these moves to basically... Privatised. I, I mentioned. I think last week I mentioned that it's in effect for some degrees. It's almost a privatisation of the degree because the student contribution is 93% versus a 7% government contribution. And I think in some cases students are paying more than the whole degree that actually cost to deliver. So we're definitely looking at a, a big change in terms of public education. And even in the science and STEM areas and the areas where they're saying they want to lower the cost for students because that's where the jobs are going to be. They're, they're also, while they're doing that, they're also cutting the funding to the university. So it's, and there's mm. talks that the universities, in fact, are going to have to cross-subsidise those with the money that the students pay in the humanities areas. So it's, it's a pretty complicated mm. situation. It is. And their yeah. own, um, based on what it says in the NTEU latest magazine, their own, the government's own modelling doesn't actually line up with the areas that they're allocating the changes in funding to are not necessarily the areas that their own government's modelling have identified as having the most jobs. So it looks much more ideological than, than it even looks at first glance. Isn't that hard to believe? Yes. <laughs> the... <laughs> Look, I, I do want to mention a couple of things up front, um, rather sad news. Uh, Nina Scott, who is a well-known activist, she was one of the people involved with the People's Committee for Melbourne that founded this program many years ago, and a long-term anti-freeway campaigner over in, she lived over in North Baldwin, and she was a major campaigner of the freeway going through the Coonan Creek Valley, but also, well, the point is, Nina died over the weekend. She was nearly 90. I went to her 85th birthday, 
and um, she had a long history in politics. She was a member of the Eureka Youth League, which many people know. Many people of that generation were in. It was the youth, uh, for those who don't know, the Eureka Youth League was the the youth arm of the Communist Party, and she was later in the Communist Party and in later years in the Greens. But um, Nina, a wonderful campaigner, she contributed every year to our Radiothon for many years. And um, she died, she moved to Canberra, her son and daughter-in-law were in Canberra, and she moved there a couple of years ago to a nursing home, and she died there on, on Saturday. So I just thought I'd mention that, and it's, no, uh, it's a sad loss. That is a sad loss, Kevin. Thank you for... Yeah, in fact, it, well, in fact, we we formed a, we have a group that meets once a month for lunch where everyone brings some food. We rotate the venue, and Nina, in fact, has been part of that group for a number of years as well. All activists who, after several bottles of wine over lunch, are managed to solve the problems of the world by late afternoon usually. <laughs> um, anyway, and another one I've been remiss on, and because it's some time now since I heard the news, and I'm I'm hoping it's true but I believe it is, one of our regulars a couple of years ago, we haven't had him on because he did contract a, a quite nasty cancer. John Passon also died earlier this year, I believe. So um, that's quite sad news because John was very popular on this program and a wonderful commentator on economic issues. So um, again, a bit of a sad start to the program today. Another, another uh, sad loss, yeah. Yeah, very much so. But on the other side of it, the people in that, that age group, or the, John wasn't in that age group, but the older age group who are still, still trying to make ends meet and battle on through life, Her Most Gracious Majesty the Queen has got this new little money raiser she's got going for us. She's collecting uh, plants from, I'm not sure she's actually collecting them personally, but plants from the garden <laughs> and making the Royal Collection Trust gin. At $73 a bottle, if you pop over to London, you can pick one up from the palace um, palace shop. So it's good to know. And uh, she's obviously inherited her mother's taste for the product. <laughs> so they all get pickled together. Yeah, $73 a bottle for a, for a children. It can subsidise the, the small doll she gets from the British taxpayer. And uh, there you go. I just thought I'd mention yeah, you gotta that. Help. you got to help out, you know, people who are trying to help themselves. Do you know what I mean? Not, it's a... The hand up, not a hand out. That's, uh, She's trying to keep the wolf from the door and good on her. Yeah, um, exactly. On a more serious note, though, a, a report uh, which compared 142 countries came out last week, which looked at carbon pricing. Now, we all know that's been a major area of controversy in Australia. Rudd tried to yeah. bring it in. It was knocked off. They had a spit of it for a while there, but Abbott knocked off any hope of it ever happening. And this report shows that pricing carbon emissions drives bigger falls in greenhouse gas emissions than in economics that have not embraced a similar policy approach. And the researchers who did it were urging policymakers to reevaluate their decision to dump carbon pricing, finding carbon dioxide emissions fell on average by 2% a year in countries with some form of carbon price. And in countries without carbon pricing like Australia, they increased by 3% a year a five percentage point difference, as they point out. And the, one of the co-authors who said that is Associate Professor Paul Burke at the ANU. And so there's a lot about it there, but just that it's an interesting reflection that if we went to carbon pricing, we could at least start to knock down our, our emissions. But of course, there's a major, as you mm. talked about ideology earlier, well, there's a major ideological mm. move in the Liberal Party, unfortunately, and maybe even in the Labor Party these days, not to get too excited about it. Yeah. Yeah, shame. 
That sounds interesting. That report. Yeah. Meg, did you have anything, by the way, you wanted to talk about? Um, not really. I did notice that the, um, I think it was the Atlantic had an article about people, older people affected by coronavirus and the issues of of family and friends trying to get in touch with them and, and not being able to be with them sometimes at the at the ends of their lives. So, yeah, just in terms of that, um, thinking about kind of community and how people can support one another. I just, I don't know. I think as as time has gone on, as this virus has continued to have its impact on all of us, I think at the beginning we started out thinking, you know, everyone was trying to be very gentle with each other and with themselves. And um, uh, that article reminded me that, yeah, there are some institutional challenges sometimes to actually being able to care for each other. So I think we just a reminder to be good to each other uh, when you can and, and think of your friends and neighbours because they don't always, yeah, you don't always know what's happening for the people around you. Just a little bit of a moment there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, yeah. that's matter, matter of fact. And of course, at the moment, we, we don't see much of them because we can't get out much and we're you know, going shopping and maybe a bit of exercise, but we're... Uh, you know, you're not running into people as much as you used to either when you could go out all the time and you'd run into them pretty regularly. That's so, a really good point. And they were saying that um, people were seeing their friends and family. Sometimes they had older relatives in hospital and they were seeing them only able to connect through a video call and things like that. And, yeah, obviously that's a powerful technology but also takes a lot of adjustment and can still leave people feeling isolated and lonely sometimes. So, Yeah, I read something over the weekend about that, that people are starting to to tire from the whole, we're on Zoom now, of course, but this whole experience, yeah. uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're starting, must be having, it's starting to have some sort of psychiatric Im- impact on people um, yeah. because they're not actually meeting people face-to-face, yes. I think it does, yeah. There's something very different about looking at a screen being able to see your own image on that screen as well as the image of other people. Like if you think about it in a group setting, you never see yourself, you know? Um, no. So it's be weird. It's like having a mirror there while you're chatting with, with people. And, yeah, I think it does get tiring. We miss that human contact. Mm. I wrote a poem many, many years ago called My Face, and the theme of the poem was that I'm never going to see my own face ever. In reality. <laughs> That's beautiful, Kevin. I didn't know you were a poet. <laughs> no, that was one. Yeah, that was one I knocked up a few years ago. Amazing. Just, Maybe you could bring it on we, the next we, show. <laughs> have special I'd, have to find, I'd have to find the bloody thing. It's lying around somewhere. <laughs> uh, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago about the government's contracting out and how this has failed miserably. It's one of the, it's one of the main ingredients of neoliberal economics that it failed so miserably in in terms of the quarantine hotels where they yeah. contract we know you know the contracting out has been a major part and, and this week the inquiry is finally starting with Jennifer Coates the judge who's looking at it but we also had mentioned some time earlier that the federal government particularly well, I'm sure state governments are doing it we're handing billions of dollars to the big four international finance companies. Mm-hmm. And this week it came out that they got more than $600 million in federal contracts last year. And KPMG alone, one of the big companies, got $200 million in government contracts from Defence, Health, Home Affairs. But if you look at all the others, um, Price, Waterhouse, 
Australian Bureau of Statistics, Veterans Affairs, Defence, Digital Transformation, Tax Office, um, Health, Services Australia, massive amounts of money going to these people, which should, of course, be done by and and provide jobs for public servants who, in fact, are being cut out. So it's pretty disturbing. And I think the, the case, and I think it's very hard to measure, but I suspect I suspect public servants would do the job a lot better than these companies do and a lot cheaper. Definitely, yeah. And it's, it is an interesting... It's, it's really... It's, it's tough to, like, make equivalence between spending money on one area and spending money on another area because it's, it's complex, you know. But at the same time, when you see... How much was this? 600... Well, it was uh, 600 million and... 200 yeah. million to just one company. Yeah, and you see that amount of money and then you look at the cuts to higher education or cuts to legal services. Like, for as an example, community legal, like that's a frontline service for people experiencing family violence and some of the most vulnerable people in Australian society. So apparently there's just no money to go to these services and they keep being cut and they keep being cut. And then there's money for missiles and there's money for private contractors. So I don't know. It's It gives an indication of, of where priorities are, I suppose. But, yeah. It does indeed. And, and in, in fact, KPMG and Deloitte, among their top 10 clients, are the Department of Social Services. So you've got these people dealing with right. or making policy for you know, the most right. destitute and needy in our society, which is pretty awful. Yeah, that's extremely concerning. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, not so good. I'll move on to industrial relations because we, we know that since COVID, the unions have agreed with work to job finder and with in, in the workplace generally, there have been some concessions for employers and uh and their right to uh, maybe about holiday pay around time, penalty rates, and even hours mm. you work, etc. There's been some changes, but it's getting. We know also that since then, the big the representatives of business have argued that these things should now remain become permanent and drag on, mm. because they're showing that in the past somehow by having penalty rates and and set hours, and holidays and all those little terrible crippling work practices like wages workers were ripping off employers no end and Morrison came out this week saying that uh, this must be going he said that um, the emergency changes to the Fair Work Act which enabled employers to vary the hours worked and duties performed would still be needed even as turnovers recovered so he's saying that even after all this is over, we need to keep it up. Businesses, particularly those who are rebuilding and they would have seen their turnover improved, they will still, I think, benefit from having those flexible arrangements which will keep more and more people in jobs, Morrison said, uh, as official figures showed employment jumped and those real, real figures much higher than that anyway. If we return to the inflexibility during the course of this crisis of the industrial relations arrangements that existed before the introduction of JobKeeper, Australians will lose their job. It will put more people on the unemployment queues. He so cares about workers, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Etc. He, go, he goes on. 
But again, we return to the inflexibility is a term they love. Flexibility, you need Mm. flexibility, which means you can rip workers off no end. And if we return to the inflexibility before, uh, it's a worrying sign, isn't it, that uh, that's where they want to go. Yeah. what Yeah, what a bunch of whatever. Won't say it, but yeah. Yeah, not on here. Don't say it on here. No, (laughs) please don't. At least, at least, at least the way we're doing it now, we can actually edit things out, which is not so bad. <laughs> when when we're, when we're live to air, we're live to air. That's it. It's out there. Um, on a, related to that same thing, last week also, employers themselves came out, the small business lobby, and said that they're saying now that even with JobKeeper, and they admit that it's been quite a help to them because the government's actually paying their wages bill, which is a bit of a help. Uh-huh. Uh, but yep. but nonetheless, the, the workers who are on on JobKeeper, even though they're not paying the wages, they're continuing to, to accrue annual leave and other entitlements. And so the, they're saying this could still be very costly for employers to when it's all over to have workers who still have entitlements like annual leave, and rather than, say, get rid of the annual leave, which they'd love to do, they're suggesting, I think, that the government should now give them more money to the bosses to cover all those other on-costs to workers that are being accrued while this is all going on. So there you are. Wow. Okay. Is it just me, or does it seem like the whole thing is just hasn't been working for a while? Oh, <laughs> uh, if it hasn't been working for a while, it hasn't been working for a couple of hundred years. I would have thought. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> this is just this is just the latest bout of it. This is the latest iteration. But no, that's the, right. Um, this is the... Yeah, no. This is, I, I saw a graph recently, and I wish I could remember where I saw it so that I could sound, you know, well informed. But the you know the productivity of workers has risen. There was, it was a graph. One line was productivity, and one line was workers' wages. And I think the you know the the, the story is the more productive an economy is, the better paid the the people working in that economy will be. Mm. And mm. the opposite is true. The more as productivity has risen, wages have not risen in in keep with with that. So there's like a, a widening gap between those two things. Not to even mention the the gap between the richest people in the world and basically everybody else. So, yeah, something has really been accelerating in the last 30 or 40 years. Yes, well, they, they keep telling us, as they were saying, they were so concerned about slow wages growth. And as we kept saying, well, we thought there was a relatively simple answer to that. But <laughs> yeah. while they complained about slow wages growth, they were saying we can't increase wages until productivity increases. But you're right, the figures right. are all showing that productivity has been increasing. But yeah. the wages haven't. Isn't that surprising? And the other thing I think of in terms of this situation and, and employers and, and the money coming through to, to business, whoever it was at the start of this who, who said, like, oh, people who are on casual wages and everything, they should have saved for this emergency. Do you remember that? Yes. Yeah. And so the, whoever that was, one of the federal politicians, you know, individuals should have prepared for an emergency, if you're casual, your rate of pay includes a loading for leave and you should be putting that away, which is very, you know, blind to the realities of what it's actually like to be a casual worker or underemployed in general. So, 
you know, oh, I know you could say, oh, look, I'll put this away for my holidays and for when COVID strikes to have on the side. And all I have to do now is not, not eat for the next four days and exactly. maybe sleep in a gutter for a couple of weeks, but sort of that. Because yeah. exactly. we all yeah. know those workers get such enormous pay. Exactly. And so, but the same conversation is not, I've, I've never heard anyone say that about the businesses that they should have put money away for a pandemic so they could keep paying their workers. But you can see where... But it is what they say. I mean, they, they don't say it that crudely, but they do say that casual workers get a loading for those, for those things, for the conditions that permanent workers have that they don't have. And so yeah. they should be put... But of course, it, it's still meaningless when your base wage is so bloody low in the first place. Absolutely. And, and also because of how precarious casual work is and you never know how many one day you might have, you might work 40 hours and one week you might work 40 hours and one and another week you might be rostered on for five hours. That's how casual work operates. It's there so that mm. if the business has less demand for staffing, the staff can just be not rostered on. Yes, that's right. And, and on the other side of that, the Fair Work Ombudsman says it, it's not going to pursue underpayments in small businesses and business struggling with coronavirus. So it's come out and said okay. it will consider reducing contrition payments and refraining from litigation over underpayments if businesses are financially struggling as a result. So workers being ripped off by those firms are going to get no support whatever, apparently. Yeah, right. Um, we're getting close to the time that Libby will be joining us and I want to let listeners know that they are listening to City Limits on 3CR and Kevin and myself, Meg, have been chatting about just everything really, haven't we, Kevin? Pretty well everything. Well, no, I wouldn't say everything, Meg, because there's a lot we didn't Some talk about really. That's true. Yeah. Was there anything you wanted to cover before we have our, our guest? No, I've got a fair bit of follow-up on that item we had last week about the AMP pointing the, the bloke who was, well, they paid out half a million dollars to settle it, um, a sexual mm-hmm. harassment case. He was, but they, mm-hmm. they made him chairman of AMP Capital. But there's so much of that stuff, we might wait till next week cause I'm, and lead off with it because uh, I've got a fair bit on that. It's a developing story. Okay, uh, let's cover that next week, yeah. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe everyone. What a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. 
There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Okay, back on City Limits, and we've got Libby Porter on the line. She's Professor of Urban Planning at RMIT. And um, Libby, we want to talk about a number of things today, but I'm sure you've got thoughts on the lockdown of the public housing apartments in the last couple of weeks, because you've certainly taken an interest for a long time in the public housing issue. Absolutely. Um, And thanks for uh, having the conversation about this really important issue uh, on City Limits. Um, yeah, the the lockdown, I think, really exposes, as I think the pandemic does more generally, the situation of deep housing inequality and injustice, uh, not just in Melbourne, but across Australia, really. And I think, uh, therefore, we should use what is a really uh, wrong and unjust situation to really reflect on that um, a bit more actively and a bit more explicitly about what it means for um, understanding public housing. Um, and the situation that residents have found themselves in in those towers and elsewhere, actually, in, in Melbourne and Victoria. That's a really good point, Libby, mm. because I noticed that there was the most conversation in all the time, certainly that I've been in Melbourne and doing City Limits, and every month we have a show about public housing, and this is the one and only time that I've seen this kind of movement actually happening that where people who aren't living in public housing were very aware and very vocal about what was happening in public housing and some other issues came up which you know general maintenance and and the circumstances of of living in public housing were were brought up exactly right Uh, and i think as you've identified it really suddenly put public housing on the agenda uh, Mm. for people who perhaps don't normally think about public housing and why it matters and what it is and you know, who lives in it and what, what we should think about it. Uh, so, you know, it, to that extent, um, I mean, obviously I wish this had never happened, but to that extent, <laughs> it's, a, it's a helpful kind of spotlight uh, on something that really gets very little public discussion other than by your good selves. Um, and we really appreciate how much you talk about public housing on your show, but it really isn't talked about um, much at all, mm-hmm. certainly not in the mainstream media. Uh, we talk about housing a lot, I think we talk about housing as a form of wealth creation. We talk about house prices. We're obsessed as a nation with house prices. Mm. Um, But we very rarely talk about housing as a question of justice, which it fundamentally is, and, of course, of housing as uh, a fundamental human need and right. Uh, And that's really what public housing does. It is the bedrock, the foundation of a fair and just housing system. We all of us benefit from from a really good public housing system, and we don't have one. We have a, a kind of residualised 
sort of marginalised public housing system that's shrinking and is sort of withering and decaying. And what we need is um, a serious investment in public housing, both of existing public housing stock, so that people who live in it uh, are living in safe and dignified uh, secure housing and we need a massive expansion of public housing stock to meet what is both manifest and what we call kind of latent need, the hidden need that is harder to see but is absolutely there. Mm. Well, you mentioned about people not, you know, it's, it's something people don't talk about very much. Indeed, they don't talk about it at all, do they? Because now every time mm. uh, government in particular or business talks about housing it's social housing or community housing or they throw in affordable housing whatever that means mm. but public housing as a terms has just dropped off the agenda almost altogether i agree and um i mean we're certainly working hard both in our research work and in in um, our advocacy work uh, i work closely with a collective called the safe public housing collective which is really trying to build momentum around exactly these questions of really putting public housing back on the agenda and starting to explain and I, I guess expose uh, the kind of slippery terminologies that are currently at work. Um, now, in my view, affordable housing is just a gigantic euphemism that says nothing at all because what affordable actually means um, in the sort of legal definition of affordable housing in say planning schemes and other kinds of uh, official kind of government policy on housing um, is 80% of market rates. Now, 80% of not affordable is still not affordable. So it, it's utterly meaningless in that context. So we should stop using it because it's it just, um, it sort of makes invisible what is what is really going on. We talk about, oh, we're going to deliver affordable housing, but it's not actually affordable to anybody and, and doesn't generate the kinds of uh, housing justice outcomes that we all want to see. And the other uh, really slippery term, as you've pointed out there, Kevin, is, um, is community housing. Now, there's a, there's a place absolutely for um, all forms of non-market housing in a really good housing system, but a fair, a fair housing system, but we don't have that. At the moment in Victoria, we have um, about 3.5% of our housing stock overall is uh, what you might call social housing. So forms of, of market subsidised housing, either delivered through the public housing system owned and managed by, by the Department of Health and Human Services um, and the Office of Housing, or delivered through community housing organisations, which are not-for-profit organisations that... Uh, manage tenancies and sometimes own the stock as well. So what we're seeing is uh, a shrinking size of the public housing component of that social housing stock and actually a direct transfer both of the dwellings themselves, the stock, and the tenancies to community housing providers, which is effectively a, a privatisation of public housing. And I think we can see from the last 20 years of that sort of agenda and that policy trajectory We've seen an increase in, in the amount of homelessness. We've seen an increase in the numbers of people experiencing housing needs. So it patently doesn't work um, to, to engage in that kind of model. And what we know does work is the direct investment of our governments, of, of us, in, uh, collectively in our society, in the provision of government-owned and managed public housing. That's what we know works. And that's what we need to be doing. And instead, we're engaging in all these kind of 
tricky models with you know private developers doing things and community housing providers doing things and um, all forms of other slippery nonsense that goes on 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 effectively the public estate uh, at resulting in the privatization of exactly the thing that we need to to build up you mentioned homelessness libby and i've noticed that there's a big push to uh, fund homelessness services and homelessness mm. support, but not to obviously fund the one thing that can definitely stop homelessness, which is home, affordable mm. home. So <laughs> any um, comment on the way that sort of um, that funding is allocated? And obviously, like, a, uh, it's good to have other other services to support people who are ex- who are experiencing homelessness but I would have thought a home would be like the first thing that would be the big step to to help so would I um, and I, in fact, I think <laughs> most people who've experienced homelessness would would agree with you um, that the thing that they need the most is a home uh, yep. that is a safe and dignified home, not the kinds of situations actually that people find themselves in uh, right. when they put their hand up and say, I need help, which is uh, said with no disrespect whatsoever to, to homelessness organisations and, and mm. service or delivery organisations who do an amazing job in a very, very difficult set of circumstances. Mm. But I agree with you. I think we do, when we talk about homelessness, certainly my observation of, of kind of media conversations and public conversations about homelessness, and I know people are tremendously concerned uh, about the numbers of people who are experiencing homelessness and long-term homelessness and um, you know, continuous periods uh, on and off of homelessness. You know, lots of people are really concerned about those things. But our kind of default position in our public conversation goes to, well, what services do people need? Um, perhaps they need help with food or perhaps they need help with um, sort of emergency accommodation. And, of course, those things are good and important um, and wraparound services and help with mental health and domestic violence and all of those other issues that we know are wrapped up um, in that experience that people are, are suffering uh, and we need to address all of those things. But at the foundation of, if you like, fixing that underlying problem is a safe and dignified home to live in and, and to not have it taken away from you in a month's time or six months' time um, and to not be at risk of losing it in a year's time when your situation changes or you experience uh, some other, you know, life thing that happens to you. It needs to be a safe and dignified home with life tenure. That's what public housing delivers and we know that that's what can have the biggest impact for people who are experiencing homelessness, uh, that's what will deliver the best outcome. And yet we seem not to be talking about that um, in, our, in our debates about homelessness in the sector. We, we talk about all sorts of um, other things and I think we could come back to public housing in a, in a much more explicit way. Mm. Mm. It's kind of incredible. It's just kind of incredible that so much conversation about homelessness and not about the system that makes it so hard for people to actually afford a home like so many people find it hard. And um, it's kind of like talking about freak weather events and not talking about climate change. Climate change, it's pr- exactly, yeah. <laughs> ex- exactly that. And, and I think we're, you know, we're really good at that, I think, as humans um, mm. to kind of look away from the sort of causes and sort of structural things because they're, they're harder to look at. You mm. know, a really unfair, unjust housing system is much harder to look at than sort of, you know, maybe perhaps feeling pity um, for people who are experiencing mm. something that maybe, you know, certainly I've never experienced. And, in, mm. and I think, you know, we need to kind of ask people to really check themselves on that and say, well, hang on a tick. 
why are people experiencing homelessness? Um, it's not through mm. fault of their, of their own. It mm. is, in fact, through the fact that we do not have a housing system that puts the fact that housing as a fundamental human need right at the centre of our housing system. And instead, we've created a housing system that's about wealth creation and exchange and, and housing as a commodity, not housing as the thing that every single person must have to have a dignified life. Yeah, interesting enough, I, I was um, taking one of my exercise walks across Princess Park the other morning in a sort of foggy morning, but in the, the silhouette of the city, I, as I walked across, I counted 15 cranes in my skyline mm. on a city skyline, and I thought billions and billions of dollars in real estate, and yet mm. down below there's people who simply have no, no roof over their head. Mm. Yeah, precisely. So that level of inequality, um, which we're only deepening year on year at the moment, is the thing that we must come to grips with, um, not, not a kind of you know, Band-Aid solution with some you know, droplets of money and crumbs off the table uh, for people who are experiencing such profound you know, existential crises in their, in their life, mm. um, as well as just for people who are experiencing, you know, real pain and hardship um, in just making rent every month or putting food on the table or managing, you know, the relationship between will I pay my electricity bill or will I pay my rent this month? You know, those kinds of things, you know, households are making and families are making those decisions every day and it's not fair. It shouldn't be like that because of, you know, an unfair housing system coupled with unfair labour markets and, and all of those other things. Um, but if we could address the housing situation, then, then we'd go a long way to, to fixing some other things as well. And we know what the answers are. I think that's what I find most frustrating um, and, and hear a lot from people. Um, people often ask me, you know, where, where should we look for good models? Um, well, we, we don't actually have to look anywhere. We know what they are. Um, we have all of the resources to do this work. We, we don't need to adopt a fancy program from Europe or, or anywhere else. We, we know what we need to do. We've done it before, actually, and we can do it again. We have all, everything we need at our fingertips. We just need to do it. Yeah, the, um, there were, it's probably where money's going to. Apart from government, we might come back to where government's putting its money in the housing area, uh, which is going in the wrong directions, but also other money wasted. There was a book came out earlier this year, you may have read about charities in Australia and how they many of them rip off. And it pointed out, like, I haven't got it mm. in front of me, but um, I've got it here somewhere, but the, uh, the enormous number of charities that get government funding and other funding and millions of dollars that say they're addressing homelessness, yet the book points out they have no impact at all on the incidence of homelessness. So mm. there's money there that is somehow going to waste. Mm. And I think that, um, I haven't read that book, it sounds interesting, but um, it, there's a sort of resonance, I think, with, with other ways, um, some of which are very direct and kind of blatant, where money is put into what I call kind of tricky, <laughs> tricky, obfuscating kinds of programs uh, that that don't deliver what they say they're going to deliver and, in fact, are all about re-engineering public funds and public assets into private wealth creation. And, I mean, there's a no better example than the sort of home renovations type schemes that have been um, offered and, and put forward as kind of stimulus packages. Uh, home out of builder the, at the moment, yeah. The home builder or whatever it's called. Um, I mean, there, there's a, just a 
prime example of public money going into something that is directly related to the ability of people to extract mm. wealth, uh, further wealth from from what is effectively um, a public asset. And I know there will be many people who disagree with me on that, but um, if we think about the origins of of the formation of Australian cities and towns built on the unceded lands of Aboriginal peoples across this country, and in Victoria we're under a you know a treaty conversation. You know these these are not things to be taken lightly in terms of our uh, understanding of our responsibilities as uh, if we're landowners, um, whether we're public landowners or private landowners, to these broader public good questions that need to be much more about wealth distribution um, and, f- mm. and fairness in that wealth distribution than simply, you know, putting, um, you know, new renovations in your home so that you, you ho- your home value goes up, um, which just drives inequality and um, housing unaffordability and all of those things. I think uh, I read in, I think it was Nor- the Northern Territory um, just a, a couple of weeks ago, um, actually pulled money from a dedicated fund that was about to go to, to public housing, the delivery of new public housing units, and put it to a home renovator mm. scheme, much like um, the national, the federal um, home builder scheme. So we've got the direct transfer of money that's supposed to be going into public housing uh, being pushed into private wealth creation initiatives. And we see that in renewal programs across the country as well, which we've got here in, in Melbourne and Victoria, the public housing renewal scheme, which is all about um, the privatisation of of public land and the privatisation of public housing so that private developers make profit um, from public housing estates. And all of these, you know, thousands of people are being displaced from public housing estates so that um, private developers can come in and redevelop the the site. Mm. And on that last point, many many of the people who've been moved out of those places into, you know, dispersed around the metropolitan area somewhere, uh, they've lost their social connections, particularly people from ethnic backgrounds, etc., who um, who during the struggle said how much they they loved the community they were in, and particularly now with COVID and lockdown, mm. this must be having a, a devastating effect on a lot of those people. It's having an enormous impact. We know from the international evidence that the the kind of effects and impacts of of being displaced, which it basically means you've had to move from your home under conditions that you didn't choose yourself. So you didn't choose to, to go somewhere else. Instead, something has happened that's forced you out, um, whether it be price um, or a renewal program or whatever it might be. So people who experience displacement, it, it's a kind of existential crisis for people because they've lost the sense of security that they have in their, not just their physical dwelling space that they may have called home for a long time, but also, their, as you just pointed out, their community. And many of those, in fact, I would say all of those uh, estates that um, people have been displaced from and are up for renewal under this um, so-called renewal program have you know, experienced massive impacts um, at, through that loss of c- community, the fragmentation of their networks. You know, they used to live in, in uh, environments where they could go next door and ask for help if they needed to or, you know, new um, people around them. They shared all sorts of resources and childminding and all manner of um, kinds of, you know, community-based, grassroots-based forms of, of organising themselves um, and, and, you know, living life. Uh, and all of that's been ripped away uh, so that, you know, certainly the people that I talk to who've been impacted by those, that, that form of displacement are really struggling, particularly in this context. Um, they may have had to get their kids into new schools um, in the middle of COVID. 
and now, you know, remote learning and, you know, not having anyone to call on now in their neighbourhood because they don't know anyone and they can't go out and meet people because we're not mm. allowed to, quite rightly, but um, not encouraging them to do so. But it, it just places so much burden on people uh, who already have enough to deal with. Um, and, and instead, we just keep asking people to hold up this burden of, of, um, of their housing situation really unfairly. It's a really um, good point, Libby, and one that I noticed when um, the issue of detainment of public housing residents was happening because of coronavirus, that there was a lot of content mm. and people who maybe didn't have much of an experience or know people in public housing were commenting on how amazing the response was of the community to get information translated into languages, to get the food organised mm. so individual residents could have the specific items that they needed. And um, it was, it's funny, I think it speaks to the stigmatisation of, of public housing residents, that people were surprised. But that kind of mobilisation, I don't think, just happens all of a sudden. It's because there's already networks of communities that are very strong and, and, and talking to one another and supporting each other already. Exactly right. Um, and I think if, um, if that message has gotten out a bit more, I think that's a great thing because it... Uh, helps mm. address exactly that that sort of stigmatization that you're you're referring to there. I, I think the stigma question is a really interesting one, and and again one that needs a lot more unpacking in in our kind of public conversations. It, people describe, um, or it often gets described to me as you know public housing, either tenants or um, or the sites that say estates or towers or whatever it might be experience stigma, and it's a very interesting mm. thing because of course of course. Stigma is something that other people do to those people. It, it's not something that um, the you know people living in public housing towers, for example, produce themselves. It comes from outside uh, and is something that we engage in as a society. So, if public housing uh, towers or residents or sites or whatever estates are stigmatised, it's because we've chosen for that to be so. And, and so I think we really need to kind of flip this um, conversation around stigma. You don't address stigma by moving out of public housing. You address stigma by ceasing to, to engage in the stigmatisation of people who live in public housing. That's a job for all of us as a mm. society, not a job mm. for public housing tenants, right? And, and, if, right. and you're exactly right. The, if the lockdown absolutely showed and demonstrated how extraordinary those communities are, how well organised, how well resourced um, from their own resources they are. Uh, and I mean, can you imagine a situation where, I mean, if only this had been what happened, uh, where the DHHS had a long-standing trusting relationship with communities, with actual communities in those places and went to them and said, we think there's a problem um, with COVID-19. We want to keep you safe. Work with us. Let us help you to organise with the residents' interests and needs and forms of organising right at the centre, let's let's do it that way. Imagine what a different result that would have been than the one we saw, which Completely was police-led and um, or police-activated and and entirely militarised and harmful yeah. rather than you know nourishing community-based level of support, which which unfolded in eventually, but not under circumstances that anyone in those towers chose. Mm, really agree. I had to put myself on mute so I didn't keep on interjecting and, and agreeing with you. <laughs> We've got about um, about seven minutes left, and I know you wanted to also talk about the changes to education 
funding, well, Kevin. Um, yeah, well, I, I think um, Libby works in an area that I think is going to be impacted by the changes. I'm just wondering, Libby, how you feel about the changes TN's announced to, uh, to the, particularly the, the, the costs of education for certain students? Yeah, well, I mean, I think they're, they're pretty um, misdirected and wrong, wrong-headed, certainly. Um, uh, there's been a fair bit of discussion uh, about the fact that they will deliver probably the opposite from what um, the government appears to intend, which which is to direct students into particular <laughs> kinds of yeah. um, of, of uh, study-based activities that are supposedly about um, you know jobs for the future, which is of course a complete nonsense. Which with itself. this government's hard to believe, isn't it? Really, but yeah, it is. Yeah, indeed, yes. <laughs> Um, so, you know, all of the financial modelling that, um, that certainly I've seen that universities and others have engaged with um, suggests that because of the way the incentives will work uh, inside the, the funding package, in, universities will be much more incentivised to expand their arts and humanities programs, not reduce them. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's... That would be great. Yeah, wouldn't it? Uh, I think that would be, would be terrific. Good for history and... Exactly. The idea that we don't need um, arts, humanities and, and sort of critical social science, you know, is just A, stupid and for the future, nonsensical. I mean, we need uh, the discipline, all of the disciplines and, and the people, you know, like I would argue, um, good critical social scientists do who work at the interface between disciplines because none of these... You know, no, no question around whether it be climate change or housing or whatever it might be is simply a technical question. These, these are political and social questions um, as well and cultural questions. We can't just uh, treat them as if they, you know, you could write a mathematical formula for them. We might need mathematical formulas, yes, but we might need other things too and other ways of thinking about them. So, you know, the, the whole thing in my view is, is wrong-headed. But other than that, yeah, it's a really unsettling time to be um, certainly an employee in a, in a university. Um, there's a very strong sense, um, certainly amongst people that I speak to in the university sector, not, not just in my own um, neck of the woods, but more broadly, that uh, you know, universities are, are really under attack, that the, the, the sort of value of public education, public higher education, and the value of the public university as something that, a bit like public housing, that we should all cherish, uh, is, is under sustained mm. attack. And there is a clear intent from my perspective, from my view of it, um, to fundamentally undermine that um, and attempt to basically um, get rid of anything that looks like it might be a sort of threat to the, to the status quo, um, anything that might look like sustained uh, investigation and critical inquiry, um, which to me is precisely what we need um, now and in the future. Mm. It's, I, I've been thinking about it also in terms of um, the... When I was at university, John Howard was had a very sustained attack on student unions, and mm. at the time I thought, like, what's he trying to achieve? What a futile kind of like, you know, going after windmills. And now I look at it and I'm like, that was a really strategic move, and I think it's impacted on just, you know, reducing the capacity of people to collectively decide and organize things on university campuses is just yeah one one more cut that that allows more to happen later exactly right and i think that a sort of general mo mm. mode of operation um is so actually um pervasive in so many areas i mean you know there's been discussion around 
the particular structure, say, of the DHHS and mm -hmm. our public health organisations in Victoria and how, you know, all sorts of kinds of capacity reducing cuts and changes to structures and all of that have just reduced our, our capacity. They've cowed mm -hmm. our bureaucracies. I think our universities are becoming increasingly cowed um, in the sense that we're much less likely to be able to speak out uh, because we're either way mm -hmm. too busy um, because we're, our workloads are so big or um, it, it just doesn't uh, bode well for you to speak out because we get you know wrapped over the knuckles in various different ways, much harder to get funding, um, you know, the forums for actively speaking on topics that like this that you know certainly I'm really passionate about and and others are too to bring our uh, to bring our research skills and our, our teaching skills to the to kind of bigger public questions um, is such an important part of what the public um, university is all about. Uh, and I see this as just a, a, a corrosion of, of that, um, much like uh, public housing is being corroded um, mm -hmm. and, and has been over so many decades. You just whittle it away and whittle it away until it is sort of a, a sort of shadow of its former self. Um, and I think the same kind of thing is underway in, in so many other areas of our life um, and our society. It's, um, it's pretty distressing, actually. I think much of the problem goes back to when Howard was making turning universities into businesses rather than institu uh, educational institutions that the, the mm -hmm. vice chancellors at that time went along with him and, and rolled over rather than fighting it. I think that played a major role in where we are now. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I, I think so too. Again, this, this kind of, you know, the, the sense of the sector not standing up for its own values seems to be so pervasive uh, at the moment. Um, and I, I just wish we were in a better position to be able to do that. But you're right, that sort of corroding of the base is is what we've been experiencing and it's really coming to pass and being exposed um, at this moment, I think. Yeah, and they're all, um, uh, sadly, there's many people losing their jobs at the moment, of course, as well, in many of the universities. Hundreds of staff are being, even those staff have made some sacrifices, they're still, they're still getting rid of you know, hundreds of staff across unis around, around the country. Yeah, it's it's really concerning, and there and there, of course, um, the, the jobs that you can see, if you like, um, there's there's all of the uh, jobs that have been done by people in casualised forms of employment um, that have been lost mm. very quietly uh, over the last sort of few months. Certainly, we've seen um, at RMIT that and that was the first thing that happened was a whole lot of people were um, to use the the appalling management terminology um, of the sector off boarded. <laughs> In the, in the early months of the early weeks, in fact, of, of the pandemic um, unfolding and the you know the lockdown uh, kind of impacting on on student numbers and other things, so um, you know that those numbers that we see, like you know um, I think it was UNSW losing shedding 500 jobs, and I'm sure we'll see more um, in the and, and Deakin um, shed a, a whole lot of jobs. That that's the of course extremely concerning and isn't even the whole picture um, because universities operate on such casualised forms of of labour um, and have done, you know, that trend has been with us for a very long time. Um, I think about 50% of the teaching at my institution is done by people on casual contracts. Yeah, there's very, I mean, it's much harder to get tenure these days, isn't it? In incredibly difficult, I incredibly difficult. And, you know, my colleagues who are on casual contracts, uh, just it's just a massive struggle the whole time. And you, you just trying to piece together um, something that looks like a salary. And, and this is um, not just in the university sector, of course, it's elsewhere. I mean, we could look at um, aged care sector and what's unfolding there and how um, casualisation is really coming to bite 
just at the moment as, as people are trying to stack together a, a proper job um, and having to move between um, different aged mm. care homes and, you know, potentially taking infection with them as a, as a consequence of that um, and having no other alternative because their, their labour market conditions mm. are so poor. You know, this trend um, we have to address head on and it's, and it's underlying structural conditions that produce it. We have to, to look at head on um, and, and universities are certainly a place we need to do that. Yeah, at the same time as they're crying poor, Melbourne has a plan before Melbourne City Council to build a $2 billion super campus in the Fisherman's Bend precinct. So there doesn't seem to be any shortage of money there. No, I honestly think there's there's plenty of money going around in the in the university sector. Um, is a, you know, the univers- most universities, not all, but most of the certainly the group of eight universities have pretty big contingency funds, and I thought they were packed away for a rainy day, and I would have thought it was bucketing just at the moment, but um, <laughs> we seem unwilling to use it. <laughs> <laughs> not to pay staff, at least. That seems to not be a priority. It, no, indeed, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we, we'll have to wind right. it up, unfortunately. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Libby Porter from RMIT. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Libby, and um, it's lovely to have these cheery conversations, isn't it? <laughs> indeed. Thanks so much, both of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks, Libby. Cheers. And that's it for City Limits. Next week, um, it's a fifth Wednesday, Meg, so we'll have... Um, I'm hoping next week, uh, in fact, yeah. you've got something lined up, haven't you? Bikes or something? I haven't. No, well, not yet, but I hope I, hope I will. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. Okay, bikes. You? And I'm think, Well, I'm thinking maybe um, people have asked me, um, the, the retail and fast food union, which is proving a bit of a nuisance to the shop assistance union, um, oh. just... Some detail about it, how it was formed and how it's got uh, standing in the courts, etc. So, but we might have a discussion about that with Josh Cohen and from that union next week. That would be great. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, okay, that's it. Thanks a lot, and um, thanks to Libby, and thanks to well, you thank Karina Meek. She's doing a great job. Thanks so much, Karina. Are you still there? Are you awake? Have you finished your knitting? Oh, she's gone home. She's given up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's... Thank you, Libby. Thanks very much, Megan, Kevin, and Karina. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Thanks very much, Libby, for tripping. Classic City Limits ending. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.